0: welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we've got a discussion of Jake's personal war crime. It's a film made by a man on a path of self-destruction, about a man on a path of self-destruction. Francis Ford Coppola's seminal classic from 1979, Apocalypse Now.
1: Then I've got a recap of week three of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... So, Chris, I don't know if you were as excited as I was to review this movie, but there was just something that spoke to my soul when you said you wanted to review that movie where the group of outsiders ventured deep into the jungle to find the large mythical beast.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would call Marlon Brando a mythical beast. I mean, I guess he did put on like 80 pounds. Uh, Wait,
1: what? What? Brando? Yeah. Did, did, did Did they CG Brando into this movie?
0: No, Jake, did you not get the memo? We're, we're talking about Apocalypse Now because it's a war crime of yours. And so, you know, figuring that Kong Skull Island kind of has this Vietnam vibe to it and a like, kind of a look and feel a little bit like Apocalypse Now. Uh, did, did,
1: okay, so full disclosure, I've n- never seen Apocalypse Now, including this minute as we're recording. I have not seen Apocalypse oh, Now.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> Um, uh, well, do you want to, I've got an idea, Jake. Do you want okay. to see if maybe you know enough about it to just review it anyway?
1: Uh, well, I did, I did get a film studies degree. Mm-hmm. And if we're being honest, I wrote papers about movies I did not even see. <laughs> that's sort of true. And you can read my Brokeback Mountain review if you want to. I did hear S.E. Hinton talk about yeah, Brokeback that's true. Mountain, which I feel is. Did, the did, full experience
0: did you at least read the the screenplay that we had for that class or no
1: for for what for for
0: brokeback mountain we had brokeback we had the mountain? screenplay yeah I,
1: I i barely cracked a book in film <laughs> <You> were. <laughs> i read i read anything by walter merch and nothing else okay
0: good good then let's let's start here um tell me what you do know about apocalypse now
1: Okay, so I, I, this is, this is some, some some truth right here. Uh, I decided I wanted to watch Apocalypse Now, but before I could do that, I needed to read Hearts of Darkness. And this is when I was probably a freshman. So I picked up Hearts of Darkness and I read half of it and I never finished it. So I never watched Apocalypse <laughs> Now because I never finished Hearts of Darkness. Jake,
0: Heart of Darkness is a short story. It's like 70 pages.
1: Um, I wasn't a very dedicated reader. I think okay. I established this early. Unless it was Walter Murch, right. Unless it was Walter Murch, when I I flip back to the cover, Murch didn't write the book, so I just threw it in the trash. Okay,
0: okay. So what? Tell me, what do you know about Apocalypse Now? Tell me, like let's let's pretend like you've seen it and and you have opinions on, uh, you know, the story, the aesthetic, the history, everything. Go.
1: Uh, so the first thing, the first thing I think is the liberal use of napalm in a majority of this film <laughs> throughout it. Is a very, very strong metaphor mm-hmm. for the heat of the Vietnam War.
0: Right. Okay. That's interesting.
1: Yes. And and I I know that there was also some documentary footage of soldiers surfing on bombs. Duck. Oh, I, I assume it's like some Slim Pickens type stuff going on. Yeah, I did. Where they rode the bombs and like surfed on mm-hmm. bombs. That,
0: you know, I was actually unaware of that fact, but that makes a whole lot of sense now that you bring it up.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, obviously, it was actors, but they were trying to recreate like a like a ver- verite aesthetic right there right. by surfing on bombs.
0: Right. You know, yeah. it's interesting you bring up the verite aesthetic. Tell me a little bit about the initial—because this is a movie that, you know, they tried to make it and then it fell through and they tried to make it and it fell through. Tell me a little bit about the, the initial attempt. You know, who, who was going to direct it and how he was going to do it.
1: Uh, o- Originally, uh, I assume— that it, it was just Francis Ford is before he, he, he went and married into the Coppola
0: uh-huh,
1: family. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what I heard. And and he tried to fund it on a, on a shoestring budget and he shot it in the backyard. So like when you were running by, you would just step on like a little two by four and it would shoot some dirt up next to so you, make a gunshot go off. That's what it would look like. Right. On, on like a 16 millimeter camera.
0: Right. But then he married into the Coppola family because he was researching for the Godfather. And
1: yes, because he wanted all that wine money.
0: Right. Right. OK. Yes. So um, there's there's one or two. Uh, well, there's there's one serious cameo in this. And then there's there's a few people who show up that uh, it's either their first screen screen role or one of their first screen roles. Tell me a little b- bit about those. They're, those are pretty exciting uh, to see these actors who we all know now, but see them on screen so young.
1: Um, so I know that a baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt shows up. Mm -hmm. He's, he's that baby in that scene in the middle. Uh, the one who is indiscriminately slaughtered by soldiers, I assume. Yeah. and From what Um, I understand that
0: actually happened, but because, you know, they, they had the village doctors who were able to put him back together and he was fine.
1: Well, what they did is they actually sent him down the river in a basket, but then he was found and raised by another family. It's a tale as old as time. We, We all know this. Um. But uh, the other cameo is uh, Marlon Brando was not even scheduled to be in this movie. Uh, they just stumbled across him in, in the woods. That's where he was hiding when he was supposed to be accepting his Academy Award, but instead had some political point. to. And
0: make. well, and that's why, you know, historically, there's all the, the stories about he was very difficult to work with. It's because he was feral. Like he he wasn't expecting to run into anyone. He was kind of having a bad time and he had gorged himself on mangoes.
1: Oh yeah. They say he gained 80 pounds for this role. It wasn't causal. It was just it was just uh coincidence. He happened to gain 80 pounds <laughs> and and had a role. <laughs> um uh, am I close on any of this?
0: Uh A for effort, but no, not not really. Okay. A, a couple more questions. Um there's there's a great story about that opening scene in in the film, you know the one that I'm talking about. Um,
1: and yeah, it's a six minute long shot, and in the end, Charlton Heston's car blows up. Not that one.
0: Um, oh. the the one that involves Martin Sheen as Captain Willard, and it's sort of setting up just sort of the the feeling of everything you're about you're about to dive into. And they, you know, they shot that scene on his birthday.
1: And is is this the one where he's staring at the ceiling fan, and then it turns out it's the it's the Brookstone noise machine on his desktop right. that's right. making the noise? Yeah, right. I remember that one. And and then he, yeah, he he had it on the helicopter setting,
0: and then he injures himself. Tell me about that.
1: Um, I think he slaps a glass while he's in the, in the scene, and and they just keep rolling even though his hands cut, and and he's still just yelling at Christoph Waltz
0: at Christoph Waltz why was he slapping the glass
1: uh because they they it was on loan from the museum it was a classic glass and he thought it was a sugar glass but it wasn't it was still the real glass and they destroyed a 400 year old glass chalice in the scene
0: okay final final question um, and this is one you should actually know, but I I, I bet you don't because it's probably been a while since you've read uh, one of my favorite books, a book that I reread like every six months uh, in the blink of an eye by Walter Murch, who uh, okay. famously edited and edited this film or was one of the three editors on this film and also had a part in the sound design. He handled like the sound effects, mixing of sound mm-hmm. effects and that sort of thing. Um, this film had a ratio a shooting ratio of what? So,
1: oh, God, I I think it's like 200 to one, right?
0: Oh, you're actually you're actually way overestimating. Really? Yeah. What is it's, it? It is. It is 95 to one uh, final. Really? Yeah. Final question. How many feet of film did they shoot?
1: Uh, I'm got, I think it's one of those mythical. It's like a million feet of film. It,
0: yeah. It's like one point depending on who you ask and what I think. I think merch said it was about. Like one point two five million or one one point five million somewhere in there. I've heard as much as like two million or two point five million, which also like adjusts the shooting ratio. I think it's I think it's about a million and a quarter or something like that. I felt that's just that just manually just editing insane. on a movieola. That that is an insane insane task
1: so uh, w- one, one thing i have seen is uh just from documentaries and stuff about movies is that opening scene of uh him in the room you know doing his right his little thing yeah. and uh, that's what i picture merch like in the editing room <laughs> he's just actually doing those things
0: me too doing i could i could absolutely <laughs> see merch like doing this sort of like quasi karate thing like mm-hmm. like when he's trying to figure out exactly where to i don't know if you've ever seen him talk about uh sometimes when he edits he will go through the same cut multiple times and stop it and when he finds that he's stopping on the same frame then he's like oh well that's Mm -hmm. that's the frame i need to stop on um i could see him plus he's always
1: standing up he he edits standing up well because he has to have
0: have he has to have the has to have that bounce
1: (laughs) right so he's doing karate. Okay, Jake. T- to say that he's never done karate would be a lot.
0: Yeah, probably, probably so. Um, okay, Jake. So I hate to tell you this, but you have failed the Apocalypse Now quiz.
1: So I, so what do I need to do?
0: Um, I think, I think what we need to do is we need to take a break. Um, I will perhaps, I, I've got this whole hyperbolic time chamber thing. I'm going to play a clip from Apocalypse Now and then in that time you will be able to watch it i suggest you watch the theatrical cut not the redux although you can watch the redux after you watch the theatrical cut if you want but yeah
1: i i I tell you what i'm gonna watch whatever i can go and get from the east baton rouge public library
0: how about that? sounds great so i'm gonna play this clip and then by the time we get back you will have seen it and we will be able to discuss france ford coppola's
2: apocalypse now how many people had i already killed There were those six that I knew about for sure, close enough to blow their last breath in my face. But this time, it was an American and an officer. That wasn't supposed to make any difference to me, but it did. Charging a man with murder in this place was like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. I took the mission. What the hell else was I going to do? But I really didn't know what I'd do when I found him.
0: Every so often, we like to own up to our cinematic sins on the show by discussing a seminal film from the past that one of us has somehow overlooked. These reviews are shamefully dubbed our war crimes. This week, we're discussing Jake's war crime, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, a film which took the better part of the latter half of the 1970s to complete, almost cost Coppola his home, his family, and his sanity, and damn near killed Martin Sheen in the process. The production of this film was just littered with problems from the beginning, from uh, Martin Sheen having a heart attack on set to uh, monsoons delaying... uh, Delaying filming to other delays in in filming to uh, Marlon Brando showing up 85 pounds overweight and not having read the script or the source material. The script is based on Um, all sorts of all sorts of stuff, even the, the Filipino Air Force, which was aiding the production in providing the Huey helicopters that you see. Uh, In the film, the the Air Cavalry, Um, from time to time, they would just, you know, have to up and leave because they were actually fighting rebels in the uh, in the jungles as they were as they were filming.
1: Look, if you think this sounds unbelievable, go read the IMDb trivia for yourself. Uh, Just listen to some of these. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne saved Emilio Estevez from quicksand. After a long day of shooting, Martin Sheen had to have a toe amputated. Dennis Hopper got a young Lawrence Fishburne addicted to heroin. Uh, To be fair, only two of those are actually true, uh, according to that page. But I'll also give you a hint. Both of them involve Lawrence Fishburne.
0: (laughs) So, Jake, I'm curious. Back in our college days, we, alongside several friends, shot a film about a group of young men on a long, torturous journey into the unknown. Shooting conditions were often miserable. Personalities clashed. Tempers flared.
1: One of the actors never read the script.
0: One of the actors never read the script, much like Coppola, we had no idea how the film would end, and ultimately it took years to complete. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, now that you've finally seen Apocalypse Now, does it even hold a candle to our little generic no-budget road comedy? And furthermore... Given everything you now know about the film's production process, was the long, slow descent into madness undertaken by the cast, crew, and all involved parties ultimately worth it when Coppola's idiosyncratic vision finally emerged on the other side?
1: That I mean, that's a really good question. I'll tell you my, my main impression from watching it this first time. It, it felt like, let's say Kubrick had never made Full Metal Jacket. Uh, And I watched this, I would say this feels like the the war, the Vietnam War movie equivalent of like 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's big. It's huge. It's ambitious. I'm not 100 percent sure even how to process it after seeing it. But it feels like that same level of a monumental film. Yeah. So I think it's worth it. Yeah. Uh, But he did make uh, what I will, you know, spoilers say is a superior Vietnam War movie in Full Metal Jacket but a very, very different one. And so I can't say this feels like Coppola's, but it feels like a bizarre uh, or like Kubrick's, but it feels like a bizarro Kubrick uh, Vietnam War movie.
0: Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, I I don't think, I don't know, I have trouble even comparing this to Full Metal Jacket or something like uh, Oliver Stone's Platoon, which I like this far more than Platoon. Um, it's, it is, it's bizarrely its own very uh, isolated sort of, I mean, because it's, It's almost just using Vietnam as a backdrop for uh, these other things that it seems uh, John Milius, a.k.a. Viking Man, um, wanted to explore with his script. So this is this is based on a script by John Milius that he wrote back in the 60s. Like originally they were going to and I I hinted at this a little bit in the opening segment um, before you had seen the film. Uh, Initially, Milius wanted George Lucas to direct this in vietnam during the vietnam war on like 16 millimeter (laughs) film like verite style uh like and it's there's a great i think it's in hearts of darkness there's a great moment where um george lucas is being interviewed and he's like well yeah he amelius always says that it was my idea it was never my idea i didn't want to go and do this that it was extremely dangerous it was easy for him as a writer to just be like oh yeah he'll he'll go and he'll go and do it and it'll be great
1: with vietnam being like a synonym now for you know uh an endless bog where you go to fail. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it 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 makes that idea seem even crazier that you would go to Vietnam to shoot this movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and it's I mean, and luckily, like it never. I Coppola actually because this was going to be the very first like real big thing that American zoetrope, and I don't think it was even called American zoetrope at the time, uh, made because Coppola had gotten a deal with Warner brothers and they were like, no, that's way too dangerous. We're not going to fund this. We don't care how cheap it is. Uh, and then he right. ended up making the Godfather, <laughs> Godfather part two um, in conversation in the same and uh, got a little bit of clout and then was able to ultimately, uh, get the wheels turning on on this, but by that time, Lucas had made American Graffiti. Um, and then by the time that Apocalypse Now was beginning to roll, you know, he was he was starting to work on Star Wars, and so, um, and and then Star Wars was done by before this movie was was done. You know, I I believe they started shooting in like '76, finished in '77. Um, By the by the time this film comes out in 79, Star Wars has has been out, has been a success, you know, all of that. So Lucas was not in the picture by the time it actually came into into being. And he was he was already sort of the hotshot director. Um, Look,
1: to to me, the real question on this is not was it worth them spending that time in the jungle? I, I think it's the opportunity cost. What great Francis Ford Coppola movies were not made at the expense of this movie being made? Did we miss out on masterpieces or is this the masterpiece that he needed to make next?
0: See, I'm I guess I'm of two sort of minds on this in that I while I see what you're saying, I do think this is this is the type of film like I don't know if this film could have been made five years later. Like it feels like the type of film that only could have been made by a a young director who had a lot of power, but um, was still also willing to take extremely sort of dangerous risks. At times, you know, he ultimately like ends up mortgaging his, uh, uh, his vineyard and, and putting his, his home on the line where if the film doesn't get completed, you know, like when, when Martin Sheen had the the heart attack, part of the problem was that he was afraid that if, uh, financial backers found out that he had had a heart attack, they would pull out and then he would be, uh, He'd be left with uh, his house repossessed and, and no movie, and it would be just a giant disaster.
1: Look, it would have been all right. He could have waited 25 years and filled in with Emilio Estevez. They look identical.
0: Uh, you do know about, like, his his brother. I forget his name now. Uh, Martin Sheen's <laughs> brother did a lot of fill-in as, like, just shooting him from the back and shooting him from... Because they had, like, five or six Isn't it weeks. like
1: Joe Estevez or something yeah, like that? Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. And,
0: and it's... Okay, but into, like, the, the other thing is I... I I do agree with you in like maybe maybe he also wouldn't have been broken as a because I feel like do you there's, think he was
1: broken after
0: I I think he he was a little bit I mean he not to say that he never made a good movie again but uh,
1: the outsiders
0: I know that, that, that that's what I'm saying I'm yeah not to say that he never made, made a good movie again but I wonder if. It hadn't been such a like crazy roller coaster if he would have had a little more longevity. I mean, maybe not because he was always very interested in doing this sort of like, um, th- I mean, this almost seems like the fetishistic uh, uh, wet dream of Coppola to do it all himself. You know, he, he's almost like big budget John Cassavetes in a way.
1: This feels like, you know how the 70s was like a whole bunch of film students finally got the camera and the money and the clout. Because they were the only ones who could make stuff that worked. Well, this because very, because
0: banks bought the studios and didn't know how anything worked. And they were just like, oh, these guys seem to know what's going on.
1: Yeah. And they were making money. So they let them. But this definitely seems like an idea like that. We're going to go over there. We're going to shoot it. It's going to be on the river. We're. Gonna, it's not. Gonna, yeah. Like, yeah absolutely. like they said, it was going to take six weeks, which I kind of get it when you watch it. They're on the river for most of it. If, if shooting on the river was like shooting on a river on a set, you could probably knock this movie out in six weeks. Aside from the helicopters.
0: Well, and the fact that they didn't know how the movie ended and they didn't know there were so there were so many variables they didn't know about. And then all the choreography of the helicopters and and the the pyrotechnics and everything.
1: I'm saying when it is inevitably remade, when it's inevitably remade, it won't take them. What was it? Four and a half decades to finish it.
0: (laughs) It was I think it was what, 15 weeks or 15 months, something like that. I know I know Fishburne. He was 14 when they started. He had his 15th and 16th birthday. Um, when like over the course of shooting.
1: That is, that is insane. And he had to stay around that long. I guess we don't know how the movie's going to end.
0: I know they took, I, they took some time off when they had the monsoon and like some sets got destroyed and, and whatnot. And there is actually, there's a moment in, um, in the film where they sort of, uh, just they're shooting with. Um, he's basically embracing, you know, the, the conditions. Then there's, there's also stuff in like redux, uh, the really unnecessary, most of redux is really unnecessary. Um, but the really unnecessary moment where they, they meet back up with the, the playboy bunnies. Um, I think that was shot around the same, the same time. Um, that just
1: feels like we're going to be here for 16 months, burning money. Let's get the crew back together with these playboy bunnies.
0: (laughs) Maybe I don't know. Get them
1: back over here. Keep the morale at a minute.
0: But I uh, here's, I guess here's my thing is the – ultimately, I feel like especially if I divorce myself from like knowing everything about the production of this this film, I think it is a near-perfect masterpiece. Um, I, I really is, do just in – It is
1: really, really good.
0: In, in, in execution of vision. And that's partially why I don't really care for the Redux. Um, I did – like when I was younger, I thought the Redux was great because it was – I guess it was still, you know, when I was, I probably saw it for the first time in high school, you know, it was still when I was like, oh, man, I watch all the like deleted scenes from movies. Like, I can't believe they, they cut this out. And hey, now do
1: you still watch deleted scenes from movies
0: on occasion. It I mean, it has to be a movie that I'm really curious about. Like if I mean, if there were a billion deleted scenes for. Uh, for rules don't apply, I'd watch them all. Yeah.
1: Oh, oh no! That that thing has to have a whole movie. They're gonna make like a wake up Ron Burgundy <laughs> for exactly rules don't apply. <laughs> Man, that would be fantastic. No, when I was when I was like in high school, I was like, oh, you know, I I, I got the special edition. I'm watching yeah. all the deleted scenes and all. Yeah. That. Now I don't. I just want to see what was put on screen, and that's I almost don't want to know any more about it.
0: Well, and that's that that's the like that's the whole thing is because I I approached this movie from two completely divorced viewpoints one is like okay does the movie work as as a movie without without bringing any of the metatextual stuff into it and i think it does i think it works really well and and that's why i actually think redux kind of gets in its own way because everything that's added back in with the exception of like there's a little tag on the end of the uh uh Kilgore scene where they actually steal his surfboard and then like take off in the the PBR boat, which I think is kind of nice. Like it's fun. Who, it's not who necessary.
1: Like, like the um the v, the Viet Cong or somebody steal it?
0: No, 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 no. The the PBR crew, Lawrence Fishburne and and uh, Oh, really? and Martin <laughs> Sheen. I think Martin Sheen's the one that. Yeah, I think I think Willard's the one that grabs it. Um, and yeah, they, and then they, <laughs> he grabs it, jumps in the PBR boat and they take off because it's, it's basically like, uh, um, Viking man in describing sort of the, the plot of it. He's like, you know, Kilgore sort of like the Cyclops and the Playboy bunnies are like the sirens. And, um, and so it was sort of this yeah I out, get that outsmarting the, the Cyclops, if you will.
1: Look, I am, I am an eternal lover of road films. I think you know yeah. this, uh, Road films are maybe my favorite genre. They can go anywhere. I love how they almost reboot themselves within the movie. Yeah, sometimes multiple times. Um, this was a I I, I honestly can't believe I, I had never seen it. Like I know why I haven't seen it, but still, Th- that's uh, exactly
0: why we're discussing it right now, though, because it's yeah. like, it's one of those where you know I just I could not I could not believe that you hadn't much like Alien and Aliens. Could not believe you hadn't seen this movie, um, and so. Took the cheap opportunity to say, oh, well, Kong Skull Island, hunters not here to force us to watch it, but it sort of seems like it looks like it's doing an apocalypse now thing, sort of. So let's just, let's roll with that.
1: Look, Chris, I just sat down and watched this until the opening credits showed. (laughs) So I accidentally saw the whole thing. It's pretty good. It's not, but uh, I, I I read on um, IMDb, which I also do not know is true, that in order to copyright a movie, you have to have the the title in it somewhere, and that's why they put it.
0: Yeah, I feel like they could have put it just like literally at the end and just said like "Apocalypse Now" in tiny letters at the bottom. I like I, I read that as well. I honestly, the Lawrence Fishburne heroine thing, I I need like a third party source to confirm this. I didn't believe a single
1: thing I read in the (laughs) trivia section. Like I barely ever do anyway, but this one was just none of this can be true. But the thing about this movie is the making of this movie is almost as important to cinema and cinema history as the movie itself.
0: Well, that's the, the fact that it the fact that it exists is a testament to like a a drive that is as as sort of like maddening and chaotic as as the film itself. You know, it's the – watching this and watching um, Hearts of Darkness in close proximity is a nice sort of like all yin and yang because they they sort of reinforce each other in like a uh, art imitating life or in, or in this case life imitating the art that is trying to be uh, created. Um,
1: I, I want to wait a year and then watch them both. Watch this again and watch Heart, Heart, Hearts of Darkness because I – want this to sit in my head and me try to unpack it yeah yeah because there's a lot there I don't know if we're going to go into spoilers or if this is just spoiler free territory I,
0: I think I think you know we're at the point where apocalypse now has been out for a while um, I'll go ahead and roll spoilers here and if we if we, if I don't know if there's anything that you want to get into but uh, I'll roll spoilers check the show notes if you want to skip ahead to beer pairings or fantasy movie league or really rad recommendations spoilers rolling now
2: so- Or did it? What didn't it? I don't know. Spoiler alert. Become the spoilers alert. Close your ears. You don't hear a spoiler alert. Right
1: now. So the main thing I wanted to roll spoilers for is once they get to Brando, first, the way they shot Brando mm-hmm. and all those shadows, um, I I know is supposedly because he's he was very fat and asked for that.
0: Well, it, it was it was partially he he wanted to be flattered, and also Coppola was like in a place where he's like he's supposed to be a green beret, but it doesn't look like a green beret. What are we gonna do?
2: It,
1: it doesn't matter. He looked enormous, not enormous fat. He looked enormous, huge. Yeah, he looked like he was you know seven foot tall and and a a, a god emperor.
0: You know, they had actually like a six foot seven stand in for some like silhouette stuff, right?
1: Really? I didn't know that. Okay. I didn't know Um, if that was
0: on the, on the trivia that you read or not. But yeah, they, I think it was like their boat guide, like their, their river guide or something. (laughs) Um, yeah, they used him cause he had, I think he had a bald head or they shaved his head. And so anytime you see like a wide, um, they're using him and then they go and shoot low. And I mean, a lot of this I think is also credit to, I mean, and just the visuals of the film throughout, uh, the credit has to go to cinematographer, uh, Vittorio Storaro, um, who, Before this, he had shot The Conformist. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but Mm -mm. a great little film actually has uh, a a Miller's Crossing, I think, uh, makes some some reference to it. Um, He also actually shot Reds and Dick Tracy with our beloved uh, Warren Beatty. Ah, Um, But Italian Italian cinematographer apparently like didn't really know English when he was hired and sort of learned it as uh, on set as as they went. Um, but he he does a great job just throughout in making everything from, you know, making you viscerally feel just the heat and humidity and the like claustrophobia of the weird claustrophobia of being out on the open water or the you know open river, but also uh, stuck in this little PBR boat with, with these people you don't really know. There's no privacy um, and then and then making. You know, doing the best he can with what he had and making uh, Colonel Kurtz, Marlon Brando, look like he is this big, incredible, menacing Green Beret sort of guy.
1: Yes, but it's it's the way he shot him in all of those shadows that adds to how enigmatic his character is. Yeah. I know all, all the the voiceover dialogue points towards it, but when you meet it, he lives up to every expectation created well and i think by his dossier
0: i i think brando also brings something to it once he finally decided that he wanted to act and wanted to be a part of it um he brings something just very like unexpected i guess and odd but like still disarming and that's it's, that's really powerful
1: well you can tell he's going off the deep end but but the way that the way that he shot and then the way they shoot willard after he kills uh kurtz yeah they start shooting him the same way and it's like he became he had to become he had to become kurtz to kill kurtz is almost
0: well and he and he really does because one he's he's sort of like lost his mind a bit um, or, or maybe, maybe that's the, he's, maybe he had already lost his mind. He, but he becomes empathetic towards like what Kurtz, the deep in that Kurtz has gone off of. But then he also like absolutely takes Kurtz's place with these natives who like now, because he's killed their God, he's become their God.
1: Yes. And, and, and that speech from Kurtz about cutting all the arms off and that sort of dedication. If he had four divisions of men like that, he could win all that part. Yeah. Um, well, that's what Willard becomes. He he becomes that dedicated, dedicated enough to, to just do that brutal killing. Yeah, it that was that was fantastic. That's what the whole movie was building to. Well,
0: and and that's that's the thing where it's like ultimately, I I think if Marlon Brando wasn't in this, I think it probably would have been a dud. It would have been because everything relies on the ending being just as perfect as possible. Um, because everything's, everything's leading up to this reveal. It's, it's, you know, kind of like a, uh, kind of like a mystery. Like if, if the ultimate, you know, thing in the mystery box isn't worth it, then everything else sort of falls apart. If, if ultimately Kurtz isn't. Um, so domineering and as you said, enigmatic, um, I don't think it works. And to Brando's credit, he brings a whole lot to it. I mean, he, he ad-libbed from my understanding, he ad-libbed that, that thing about the, you know, the amputating arms. Um, he, one of my favorite lines, which I'm not going to be able to remember verbatim, but it's a line about, uh, your, your, uh, errand boy sent by the grocery store. Um, that was just straight out of, uh,
1: to collect a bill.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's just straight off the top of his head. Um, And and it's that whole, he really made that character, sold that character perfectly.
1: Look, here's here's the other thing that's really hard to do in film. They took the end of that movie and I saw it and it still feels like a mystery to me. And you would have to tell me about repeat viewings, but the way they don't show much and he's just kind of talking like a crazy person. I feel like I need to see it again to try to solve the riddle because it wasn't. 100% it was satisfying but it wasn't 100% solved for me.
0: I mean I think I think the solution to the riddle is that there's not a solution. I mean which which he already knew. I think I think Willard knew that um, he was already like sort of to a place where he had quote unquote reached a solution which was basically um that there is no solution. I can't I can't go back home and be with my family because I feel uncomfortable there. When I'm here I'm just out of my mind, you know, it's sort of a there, there is no, he's a man with no country. He is a man with no, um, Vietnam has destroyed him. And, and this is just like another chapter in that, which, uh, means everything and nothing, sort of.
1: Well, and, and Kurtz is channeling, um, Colonel Hackworth, if you know who he is from the 70s, who apparently, uh, fought in Vietnam and, Went in, went on the news and said, you know, they're going to be in Saigon in four years. And I think they got him to resign. But in in his books, he talks about, you know, to beat the VC, you have to be the VC.
0: And is this the guy that actually assassinated some? I know, I know, like some of the facts of Kurtz actually happened. There was a. I
1: I don't think he assassinated anybody. I think he headed up a division sort of like, uh, like Kilgore did a a helicopter division.
0: Okay. Wait, then, because Kilgore is also based on a real guy.
1: Uh, I I saw echoes of Hackworth in both of those, but I I did see a quote that said it was based off of Hackworth.
2: The crew were mostly just kids. Rock and rollers with one foot in their graves. How old are you? 17. The machinist, the one they called Chef, was from New Orleans. He was wrapped too tight for Vietnam. Probably wrapped too tight for New Orleans. Lance, on the forward fifties, was a famous surfer from the beaches south of L.A. To look at him, you wouldn't believe he'd ever fired a weapon in his life. Clean, Mr. Clean, was from some South Bronx shithole, and I think the light and the space of Vietnam really put the zap on his head. Then there was Phillips, the chief. It might have been my mission, but it sure as shit was the chief's boat.
0: There's about two points where we can draw enough water to get into the Nong River.
2: They're both hot. Along the Charlie. Don't worry about it. Don't smoke.
0: Let's, let's just real briefly, I'd like to talk a bit about performances, Um, I'll start with, I I alluded to this earlier. Um, love the little cameo of Harrison Ford here. And I don't know if you noticed, he actually plays Colonel Lucas, which is a nod to George Lucas. Mm -hmm. And then the general that's there with him, he is general R. Corman, Roger Corman, Uh um, which is a, a nod, a nod to Corman, um, who was actually in, uh, uh, Godfather Part Two. I don't think we discussed this when we uh, did the war crimes review of that film, but uh, he's one of the senators in Godfather Part Two.
1: And uh, G.D. Spradlin, who's great in this film, also played a senator in Godfather Part Two. He was Senator Pat Greary, also yeah. University of Oklahoma alum.
0: Huh. And Ed, this is this is the guy who plays the general Corman in in this. So yes, that's, yes. you know, there's there's nice little uh, nice little nods there. Um, I love Dennis Hopper Hopper and his small like super Dennis Hoppery role here is this photojournalist who has 18 cameras and is totally out of his mind.
1: So what was funny is from far away when they when I, I first saw him I thought, "Oh, Harvey Keitel is in this." And then it was Dennis Hopper, which was much you know, more appropriate for this role. And then I read later, Harvey Keitel considered for uh, Willard's role. No,
0: no, no, not considered. He, this is a like Eric Stoltz thing. Like they actually Harvey, Harvey Keitel is technically in this film as Willard. Um, It's when he first gets on the PBR and they're, they're taking off and there's like, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wide shot. So you can't see any faces and they're kind of silhouetted. Uh, But yeah, they shot with Harvey Keitel for like a week or so. And then, uh, basically Coppola was like, he's a great actor, but he's not the actor I need for Willard. He's, he's not, he doesn't internalize anything. You know, he said he's an actor who's great at acting. He, uh, and, and so he had to fire him and then go and get, go and get Sheen, which I think is also a, uh, a, a great move. I mean, Sheen, Sheen really embodies just, he's, he's the perfect sort of vessel for you as an audience member to kind of get into the mania of it all. If that makes sense.
1: So Sheen Sheen was fantastic, but you know when you get fired and you have a little like resentment to to the person who rejected you. Uh, kaito had to be laughing for the next sixteen months. <laughs> like ah, they're still out in the jungle. <laughs> I, I oh I mean, man, this is great.
0: Yeah, I and that's like anyone anyone who avoided uh the 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 production of this film like you can't feel bad for them even as great as the film turned out because like it was it was rough going I mean Lawrence Fishburne apparently uh who's was, who's was great here as Mr. Clean like they they hired him I think he said he was 16 he was 14 he he lied but they wanted someone who looked young anyway Um, and, and there's the, the moment where, um, they, they come alongside that fishing boat. Yeah. Um, yeah there's, you know, there's, there's several moments of madness in this movie. There's, you know, when, when Willard and chef are off looking for mangoes and the tiger attacks, um, Mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of sort of episodic moments that culminate in, in just showing you all the madness. And, but when they come upon that fishing boat, which is apparently another thing that was not in the script, just sort of. Uh, this, they had been out so long and they're like, I got an idea for a thing, let's try it. Um, <laughs> and then they, they improvised that, uh, the, the actors sort of improvised what happened as it went along and, um they end up you know, it's there's there's it's so
1: much devastating though. They it is and Fishburne brought so much to that because he felt young in it, yeah, which made his jumpiness feel organic and real and yeah. also said a lot about what I'm sh- I'm sure they were trying to portray about the Vietnam War, which is just how crazy everything was and war in general.
0: Well and and it, it almost, you know, you you don't see him the same. Any more after that um it's it's almost like the innocence has been removed even even though he's been doing some things that are you know a little tough to to watch before that like that that moment is like really as young as he looks it's like man this is this is complicated and then they, they death, kill
1: all innocence in that movie by the way
0: yeah every single yeah.
1: person is terrible
0: <laughs> um but but then his death that comes uh soon after is that much worse uh because and and coupled with you know him finally getting you know they finally get the mail that's that's when the sort of monsoony, um when the, when they're shooting with mm-hmm. the rain when they get the mail and he's listening to that that cassette tape and then yeah. and then he gets uh gets Ambushed. shot is just just yeah. just horrible just i i mean i think and that's the thing is like so on on the, the side of knowing everything that happened it's like how how is he able to make everything come together because I mean as as I kind of joked about in the the introduction like we know a little bit about you know trying to make a film and obviously there things are going to go wrong anytime you're you're making a film but this is like this film was built to not happen to to Chris, not did, be completed.
1: Did, Chris did you pick this movie because it is the classic example of the editor saving the day? <laughs> <laughs> you you just love editing, and you just want it to say. And this is why merch is is great, and well, this is why editors are. But better it's than but
0: writers. it's not just merch. I mean, the last year of post production, merch was working on sound. Um, it was, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, and he wasn't even. I I forget the guy's name. It it was him and two other editors. He wasn't even the uh, the the lead editor. Uh, one of the editors spent a year just on the like napalm scene, the ride of the Valkyrie, all of that.
1: Wow. Um, let, let's, let's table the editing for a second. Finish talking about performances. What yeah. did you think of Duval? Uh,
0: Duvall is, so he does something f- fantastic here, which is he takes a character that should not work on screen and makes him work because he is God. so cartoony. He is so like, the only part that I feel is like uh, stretching a little too far is when the guy's got his guts in the, in the pot lid and He's like any anyone who fights like this can drink out of my canteen and then someone takes his attention away and he there's this very cartoon you're like ah just just kidding moving on to the next thing that's the only place where I'm like that, it's a little too far
1: that line apparently came that apparently that was like an a quote from an actual like war story Oh really huh. uh, yeah uh, the at least the any anybody who holds his guts in can yeah, drink yeah. from my can- canteen um, well, and
0: that's that's not the thing that was cartoony. It was the way that he he said it, and then there is a there is an extremely comedic beat where
1: immediately get distracted. Yeah, he immediately gets yeah. distracted
0: and then says, "Oh, I don't care about this guy anymore." On to the next thing. That that was the only place where it was a little too much.
1: Here's the thing I think about Kilgore. He and hear me out seemed like the American Colonel Blimp a little bit <laughs> because he was rooted in wars that had been fought in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, he definitely seemed like. He was treating it like World War II or hell a civil war
0: <laughs> no absolutely absolutely i mean the the fact that he's that he's wearing the the Civil war cavalry hat i mean he's and and there's and there is something to that direct line from you know going from horses to uh to the the Hueys that that has a nice sort of uh romanticism for that character. To it
1: right but his his style we, we see that his style of the war isn't going to win that that isn't going to win anymore you almost need to have Kurtz's yeah. approach to war to win we learn as it goes forward well
0: but Kurtz's approach isn't winning it's it's something else completely
1: right it, it's it's you you can't win unless you lose yourself completely. but but my point being Kilgore is portrayed in a way that still makes him this almost like a lovable romantic. In a way, Mm -hmm. because he's cartoony and he's big, but he's still fighting this war from the past and just trying to push the world into his own worldview. Like, yes, I'm in a war, but but damn it, we're gonna surf, we're gonna ride in here like like men and take take this point. That's just not what the war (laughs) was anymore. But he was gonna make you fight.
0: Um, Yeah, (laughs) there's there's so many like, uh, Milius even said, you know, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. He was like, I know that's the first thing that's gonna get cut from the script because no one can. You know, it's it's just too goofy. And Duval Duvall 100 uh, percent sells it.
1: I think Duval's underappreciated in general. I know he's a great actor, but yeah. I, I feel like his name never comes up the way it should come up because yeah. I've never seen him botch a role.
0: No, absolutely not. And but the thing is that he's he's a he is a great sort of supporting guy. If that you know, he's he not to say that he can't play a leading man, but he is so good at like fleshing out the background.
1: Yes, because he he's so committed. He's not he's more than a character actor yeah. without a doubt. But when he is just the the character actor supporting actor, you feel like that whole world is real because he I don't know how method he is, but it feels like he's bringing his entire past to every role.
0: Yeah. Well, it, Martin Sheen in an interview on the uh, the Blu-ray disc talks about how um you know, he was like when they when they went through that whole, you know, landing on the, the beach to Uh, do the napalm and the surfing and everything. Um, He was just straight up like they land the helicopter and he gets out and he goes into he goes into he's in character already and gets on the beach and he's giving orders and like, you know, not concerned with, oh, God, there's 50 helicopters flying around and I could get my head chopped off. He's just he's just in it.
1: Uh, it, uh, There's 50 helicopters around and we're on apocalypse now. So if my head did cut off, get cut off, it would just be part of the story. It it
0: would end up in the film. ultimately. It it
1: would end up in the. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Duvall's head severed and reattached during shooting.
0: Uh, <laughs> Only set them back two weeks. That's that's why he has the yellow bandana around his neck, so you can't mm-hmm. see the scars.
1: Yeah, that would that would make sense. Uh, wh- wh- so what? So what did you think of the score? Um, and and how much are you a fan of circus music?
0: Wait, you by score you mean soundtrack?
1: Uh, by score, I mean, soundtrack and by soundtrack, I mean that one door song and, and that Wagner's.
0: Well, the, I think, I think the sound, and this is, this is probably me kissing Murch's ass a little bit, but I think the sound is one of the most important parts of this film. Um, the, and it's, it's a meshing of a whole bunch of stuff. And so the. The Doors and the Wagner, that's directly from Milius. That was in the script initially. Um, that's, oh, wow. That's another thing that I, I found amazing in sort of doing some research is like, because I knew Coppola was doing rewrites, you know, on, on the day of and that sort of thing. So I imagined like he kind of took over, but a lot of the memorable parts were already there 10 years before they started shooting, um, which is remarkable, um, but the, uh, the doors, I, you know, I just, I don't quite get the doors, nothing against them. I just, it's, they're not yeah. like, I'm uh, never, I, I, I'm never going to get the
1: I think the doors. it's that I never smoked pot. I've never smoked pot. Therefore, I can't appreciate the I doors. Don't,
0: I don't, I don't know if it's that. Um, but I, I'm, I think, I think the Wagner ride of the Valkyrie is... Is kind of great. We're we're almost living in a. Uh, how did how did that work for you? Because I feel like you've seen the parody of it a billion times before actually seeing seeing it, it in worked. context. It worked. Does it okay? Um, yeah,
1: it worked. But I but I also thought the Doors worked, and I'm not a fan of the Doors. the The only thing I ever say about the Doors is anytime I hear a song and it sounds like circus music, it always ends up being the Doors, uh,
0: <laughs> or something from Dog Problems. Um, of course. <laughs> but uh,
1: but but I thought it really worked here. Because that is what I associate with that time period. Yeah, that is what I I feel like that kind of insanity that the doors have worked here. It was well, right. it and it, it was right. It justifies that circus music sound even existing in the first place. How well it worked here.
0: Well, so there's also the actual score. In this, which is this synthy, like, I guess, so Francis Ford Coppola actually hired his father, uh, Carmine Coppola, to write a score for this. And then he hired a whole bunch of people who were uh, synthesizer wizards, you know, into moogs and all of these, uh, you know, patching uh, these synths and sort of had them transpose what Carmine wrote. And then ended up hiring, I forget his name because I'm also not a big fan of, uh, or I've just, I've never gotten into the Grateful Dead um, maybe once again, to your like never, never taken illicit drugs, um, but, uh, hired their percussionist to do a whole bunch of like, basically from my understanding, and I think this is in, uh, hearts of darkness, they just like set up the, the entire film, played it from start to finish and him and like 15 other percussionists, just like improv did a whole bunch of stuff. Hmm. And then some of it ended up in the film. Um, so there's, there is like, I think the thing that works with, with the doors and with the weird synthy, because the synthy thing, like it shouldn't work, but it works sort of in the same way that the, have you, have you seen any of the Nick?
1: No, I haven't.
0: Uh, Cliff Martinez who, you know, he's been doing Nicholas winning reference soundtracks lately, you know, drive neon demon. Um, the one with the hands that I can't remember. Um, <laughs> Uh, he He did the score for for the Nick at least the first two seasons of the Nick and it's this extremely electronic synthy sort of thing and and you know it's a film that's set at the turn of the twentieth century uh but it it sort of works it it sort of fits because it's it's this weird unknown um and and the music gives that that almost alien vibe and i I feel like there's something about the the unnaturalness of the music, the the score in this um, that, that aids sort of in the same way that, that Martinez is, does in, in the Nick. Um, and then, and then the doors on top of that, the, you know, you call them carnival music or circus music. Circus, um,
1: circus. <laughs> um, it, it, it
0: sort of that also like, what is, what is this whole war, but like a chaotic circus. I mean, when, when they show up at the bridge and, uh, and Willard is trying to find commanding officer. And the guy's like, what? He's not you? Like, there's <laughs> there's just this this sense of there is nothing is – no one's in control of anything. It's just going mad.
1: That is the main thing that I got from Apocalypse Now is everything <laughs> leading up in until you got to Kurtz's little kingdom yeah. was just an unordered insanity. Yeah. And while Kurtz's order – over his domain was questionable and Kurtz had lost his mind, he had found a way to impose some order over that jungle.
0: Yeah, he, he he does, and it's a it's a weird thing that I I feel like you almost you almost have to experience the two hours before that to understand it. But
1: Yeah, if if you had hopped into that it it wouldn't have made any yeah, sense. Yeah it wouldn't
0: have made any sense. But but Coppola like sets it all up in a way and I think I think there are there are elements that He's sort of peppered in and strung you along, you know, with the dossier and that sort of thing that mm-hmm. that help you kind of get in that mindset. But whenever it finally happens, you're like, oh, this is weird, but it kind of makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's 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 rare that you can see uh what I believe was an actual bull slaughtered on screen.
0: Yeah. and that And
1: have it feel appropriate for the movie
0: that that was and that was a like contentious, like. I guess Coppola is sort of he's like, oh, yeah, well, we saw them. We saw them doing this. And so we filmed it. But I think what actually happened is they saw them doing a ritual slaughtering, you know, a bull. And then they, they actually fed it to the crew and everything. And then they were like, hey, we could do that again and incorporate it we could thematically make it fit with the film man
1: (laughs) okay did dennis hopper come up with this uh, (laughs) idea man Uh, but look i I understand coppola cannot resist an amazing murder montage at the end of his films it's almost a signature coppola thing uh and and he uses montage in the like eisensteinian montage way Of clean cutting between two. Yes, they were both happening, but just clean cutting between two things and really getting that bull slaughter, which if film school taught me anything was the one thing you need to have in a montage, (laughs) a slaughter of bulls. Are you
0: talking about strike right now? Yes, oh gosh, I haven't thought about that since freshman year no that's not true, but it's it's been a like I, I think about freshman year of college every time it comes up um no maybe maybe though that's what was missing from like the outsiders and Jack is there wasn't a good murder montage
1: <laughs> yes, J- Jack needed to be cross cut with bulls being slaughtered at the end, <laughs> but no,
0: it does it really does you know it it mirrors the uh, the first communion. It uh mirrors the. I'm forgetting the actual moment in. Um, and I we we talked about it even in in the last. It I'm, I'm where blanking. he
1: offs uh Fredo and um, yeah yeah
0: um there you know he, he that, that's almost his his touchstone signature of the 70s um you don't i don't think you have anything quite like that in in the conversation but that's a very like very small myopic film so it's it. you know it's not it, it's not existing on that same scale hmm. so i i'd like to close on this to kind of like come back to the loop of the you know talking about the metatextual side of like just because ultimately i am still baffled that this movie works as well as it does that it exists. Like, did you know that the so all the voiceover that Willard has throughout, which you know, I I know voiceover can be a somewhat hot issue about like, oh well, it's kind of lazy or it's. um I think it works really well here. I don't know how how you feel about it. Um,
1: I, I th- not only did I think it worked well, I thought this plate like a noir wrote film for a little bit. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just in the fact that, or almost like noir in the way that blade runner is like he's tracking this guy down he's learning about him but all the voiceover played the right way yeah and the the thing i found really interesting about it was the tense uh most most of it was said in the past tense when i kind of expected it to be like internal monologue but it was clearly like him reflecting on it yeah later it it was really interesting how it how it played in there
0: so are you going to recommend sunset boulevard (laughs)
1: <laughs> no no i i have a much more important film to recommend okay um yeah
0: so all of the voiceover was post-production like it was the voiceover didn't exist in the script until they got into post and then huh. um which i mean i think it's it is a band-aid it is a thing that ultimately like is there because the film probably doesn't work without it like it almost certainly doesn't work without it um but it's it's sort of like I feel like everything with everything that went wrong with this film, um, there is enough as, as much. As, and if you watch Hearts of Darkness, you'll you'll get that Coppola kind of seems like an asshole. Um, but with as much that could have gone wrong and does go wrong, um, he made the right decisions in, in basically every direction and and the decision to inject this voice over, which is very like the way it's played where it's very quiet and very, like, there's nothing, like, big or proud about it. It's It doesn't feel like a narrator. It almost feels like confession. Um, works so, so well. And also, like, sets up – it's so pivotal in setting up Kurtz and your understanding of him. And you're, you're almost becoming empathetic towards him or at least being able to understand him. Um, it's It's near perfect.
1: Well, and it's a story about Willard – Becoming able to empathize with Kurtz or yeah. uh, coming to a place where he can pass a judgment on Kurtz. Well,
0: and that's, that's a good point. You need you kind of need that to get into Willard's head to understand the decisions that he makes.
1: Right. You have to become Willard through that internal monologue to be able to go through that change that Willard goes through yeah. of see- seeing what Kurtz is. And making a decision. Yeah.
0: Well, there's there's so many like nice little little lines there, where he's you know, he's talking about the the number of men that he's sure he's killed, and or when whenever he's describing the the guys in the PBR boat, and he's talking about chef, and he's like a little too high strung for Vietnam. Hell, he's probably too high strung for New Orleans, also. So you know, says yeah. he's from New Orleans, and that's yeah. um, just Rock sort and rollers of
1: rollers with one foot in the grave.
0: Yeah. There's there's just something to like like. It's depressing, but poetic in the way that he approaches um, a, a lot of yeah, this. Yeah,
1: and, and that description of Chef, um, just to show how powerful the voiceover was, set set his character up so strongly, so quickly mm-hmm. that it stuck with it all the way up until his head was in his lap. Like that. That was. It, it was a really good line that that almost earwormed into your head. How well that was written.
2: Her regular dad. we the The time for
1: So, Chris, when the Midnight Warriors sit down to uh, hopefully rewatch Apocalypse Now, or when you sit down to edit this sixteen-month-long tape into a mere hundred minutes, uh, what what beer do you recommend you crack open and drink?
0: Uh, Jake, I don't know about where you are down in Louisiana, but here in Oklahoma, things are beginning to get a little warm. At least they're warm at the moment. Chris,
1: it was warm warm when it was cold here.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair, fair. Um, But uh, that combined with just the heat and humidity... Of Vietnam in this film, or I guess the Philippines were, but it, it, the, you know, the sweat, the, the visceral humidity that, that you feel throughout it. Um, I feel that the, you know, maybe, maybe the stout train has, has left the station and it's, it's time to get back into my, uh, my lovely IPAs. Uh, and I don't, I don't think we're going to go on a, a straight run just yet. We're not in the summer yet, but I feel like it is appropriate to bust out an IPA for this film. So, the, the one I have chosen this time is This Machine by Marshall Brewing Company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is a Belgian IPA, uh, clocking in at 7.8% and a, an IBU of 65. So it's not extremely bitter, but it is like if you are bitter adverse, hops adverse, uh, probably not a beer for you. Um, it's, but this is, this is one of my favorite IPAs and one of my – actually, probably my favorite from Marshall Brewing Company – um, it, it pours a nice, beautiful Amber with a, a thick white head. Um, it's got this great, uh, kind of funky Belgian yeast. If you're, you know, if you're familiar with the, the Belgian style, like a, a quad or that sort of thing, there, there is a specific yeast profile that this, this has to it. And then the hops, while they're not like the, the most bitter, they are extremely like sharp and vibrant and they have a nice grapefruity, um, uh, sort of nose and flavor to them um a, a perfect beer for a a hot steamy day um and and so that's why like i i think it would be perfect to you know how they they say that no no film sold more coca colas than uh, lawrence of arabia um i i think this had to be close uh just in the <laughs> you know like i get i get thirsty i get I, I feel like my brow needs to be wiped watching Apocalypse Now.
1: That's funny. I, I, I watched it and I thought it looks like home with mountains. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which, but, which means uh, if I'm going to be drinking a beer, it's probably going to be an ice cold IPA. So uh, when you watch it next time, try it with a This Machine Belgian IPA from Marshall Brewing Company.
1: Apocalypse Now and its bloated sibling, Apocalypse Now Redux, are currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com.
0: Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA.
1: Stick around. We'll be back after the break with my recap of week three of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League spring season. Now it's time for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League Recap. Each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight screen cineplex with real world movies where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit wsampod.com slash fantasymovieleague to sign up and get all the details. Let's dive into our recap of week three of the spring season. So going into this week, we had a massive pileup of cineplexes in the third place spot in our league, including yours truly. It would take a real crazy week to shake that up. So what better way to shake up a fantasy movie league than perhaps the biggest fantasy movie of the year, Beauty and the Beast. Now, Beauty and the Beast was such a huge film that it had to be split up into Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for pricing reasons on FML. In days gone by, the hashtag AlwaysFriday team has pretty much always won, but more recently, with the help of better pricing and films like Star Wars Rogue One, the Saturday team has been gaining some steam. So, Friday morning, I put my ear to the rail and heard that Friday train rolling down the track after the beastly $16.3 million Thursday preview numbers. And I just knew that we were looking at an old-school Always Friday beatdown.
0: So, how did that work out for you, Jake?
1: Uh, Okay, so I don't know why I didn't realize that a family film would do much better weekend numbers than like Friday night.
0: Yeah, I don't know why you didn't ask Phil about this.
1: Uh, f- I think Phil pretty much got it right, but my yeah. problem my problem was uh, I thought the you know fanboys and fangirls would be getting out nice and early to see it.
0: So you were banking on the millennials seeing it, not the families, so much.
1: Yes, I, I everybody I know who is excited about it is in that 25 to 35 year old huge fangirl demographic Gotcha, gotcha. and I thought that's who was gonna get it. It had something like a thousand screenings were uh, sold out, which is one of the record numbers from either Fandango or wherever they collect those data. Yeah, I saw that headline. So, so I, I, th- I thought it there's no way it can do better you know than it's Friday opening. but after blowing away its 150 million dollar projection, It ended up earning $174.8 million, making it the sixth largest domestic opening of all time. And that places it between Iron Man 3 and Captain America Civil War for perspective. So it came out that its Saturday earnings were just under a $1 million under its Friday total, making that a good value. But even that couldn't top the value you get by playing a load of Sunday screens. So, in this case, two Sunday screens, one screen of Logan, and five screens of the Belco experiment would net you the $144 million you needed to get that perfect Cineplex. But nobody in our league saw that coming. However, 20 of our players were smart enough to go one Saturday, one Sunday, six Belco for $137 million total, resulting in a 20-way tie for first this week in our league. Hey, Jake. Yeah.
0: You remember that? fight we had on hangouts about belco uh
1: yeah yeah yeah. i remember a little bit a little bit about that
0: how how many belcos were in the perfect cineplex this week
1: huh uh uh, i I don't i don't know i I wasn't paying much attention what did i say early was it like five i don't know it was it was a lot of them yeah yeah it was five of them but uh is is that a movie you're excited to see i actually would
0: like to see belco experiment
1: is it because you love big head and you can't get enough of him
0: oh yeah i forgot big heads in that Yeah, that's that's even more reason to see it. No, it it looks fun.
1: Fun is people's heads exploding.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it's a Blumhouse movie. It's an Orion movie. Orion hasn't had a movie in a long time. Um, I think I think it looks fun.
1: Okay, well, I mean, I didn't check the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, but I I could be convinced to see it.
0: I mean, if it's if it comes to streaming and, you know, six months down the road, I uh, I'm definitely going to watch it.
1: You know, one of the main ways I take in my horror films is on screening. I I, I never get motivated to go out to see them,
0: except for Get Out.
1: Yep, except for Get Out. So, Chris, how did you do this weekend? Did you trust the Beauty and the Beast?
0: Um, I did actually. Looking at my, so I I came in at forty second place.
1: Did you even beat me? Because I was down in that same range.
0: I don't know where you are. There's too many pages now, Jake. I just look <laughs> at what I'm ranked and look and see if I'd recognize any of the names on the front page. And generally the answer is no.
1: Yeah. I don't think any of our old timers made the front page in our league. I was 30th this week.
0: My my wife was tied for number one. So there's really? that. Yes. Huh. And uh, I believe Lacey, is she the Russian one? Yes. Okay. Her as well. Um, I went with I I was close to to these guys. I went with Friday because I guess guess hashtag always Friday and then a Kong and then the rest Belco. So I was only off by those first two. I went with the wrong Beauty and the Beast and then Trusted Kong. Um, But that was enough to put me at 42nd.
1: Yeah. Okay. no, I actually I actually got it sorted right. I was 46th. I went with the Friday two Logan's a bell coat. No, that's the shack <laughs> Lego <laughs> one hidden figures, two lions. It was a bad week. And I'm going to get that, that award where you play a lot of different movies this year,
0: the, the sloppy award, whatever that one's called.
1: Yeah. Diversify I, I looked, your bonds. I don't know what made me look at that one and say, you know, that's what I need to stick with, but I put all my numbers in. That's what came out. Number one. It just needed a, a Friday that beat the other two and some strong Logans. I had no idea that this was going to be, One of the biggest releases of all time. I I, I just didn't see it coming.
0: Yeah. And the irony is everyone, at least everyone that I follow on Letterboxd, you know, friends and critics, none of them really loved it.
1: That's the other thing that got it. I I saw the it's only like 68 percent or something on Rotten Tomatoes when I wrote my article last week. And I said, that's not going to carry a strong Saturday and Sunday. It's just going to be a bunch of, you know, fanboys who get out and see it.
0: But I guess, uh, I, you know, it looks like fanboys got out and they took their families.
1: I guess so. One, one of the, uh, interesting theories I heard on this one was what you should play this week is Kong. And it's because a lot of people are going to go and mom and the daughter are going to see beauty and the beast and dad and the son are going to see Kong, which is not a real reason to start Kong in your lineup. Did
0: not help me. Um, Jake, what are you doing for this week?
1: Ooh, this is a tough one because uh I just want to say Go Go Power Rangers. Do you? Except I I feel like just Saturday or Sunday on Beauty and the Beast is going to be the real way to go.
0: Yeah. There's there's a lot of options. Yeah, Beauty and the Beast is still split. We've got we got Power Rangers, we've got that uh is it called Life? That movie looks terrible.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't that's one that first off when you start your space Trailer with spirit in the sky and you're not Apollo 13. Just Mm -hmm. don't try it like that's been done. Maybe don't, maybe don't go down that road. Second, I just, it didn't look compelling to me. I feel like I watched the whole movie in the trailer. Yeah. Just tell me how it ends. I'm good.
0: Yeah. I've heard that from a few people. Actually, I'm, I'm not interested in it at all. I, although here's, here's what Jake, I, only only just hours ago, maybe an hour and a half ago uh these these went up. I already have my Cineplex uh selected, really? and i'm not gonna I'm not gonna change it.
1: Is it just a whole bunch of Wilson's?
0: <laughs> I kind of want to see Wilson, although I've never seen a Daniel Klaus adaptation that I liked, so i, I Wilson does not look great. it's only eight dollars though, so I could do that um. No, I hear my my key factor this week because I have no idea what I should do hmm zero bucks left
1: oh I know you like your zero bucks
0: so that's 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 where I am and that's why I'm staying with it I'm I, I know I'm gonna lose this this season so it doesn't even matter so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna try to find that zero bucks Cineplex every week
1: so on on movies that uh, you won't be screening and also you won't be watching what are you thinking of chips?
0: chips i've got two chips in my in my lineup do you really yeah because it fit
1: uh, and it got, I've you got to zero dollars
0: yeah i've got what i've got right now is i've got power rangers beauty and the beast sunday chips chips the shack <laughs> which i can't believe that movie's even still on here belco experiment belco experiment and ending it out with wilson
1: so did you know that chips is going to have vincent d'onofrio in it i did not did you know that kristen bell was in it I know that no one is in this. Did you know that Maya Rudolph is in it? No. I feel I feel like you don't know enough about this movie.
0: I don't know anything about this movie.
1: I saw one trailer and it looked awful. I assume
0: Eric Estrada makes a cameo.
1: I, I mean, he has to, I guess. I will tell you this. It's rated R and, and the tagline is Chip Happens.
0: Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> this will actually be interesting. I didn't realize it was rated R. So this could be... An interesting precursor to what happens with Baywatch, although Chips doesn't have The Rock in it, right?
1: Chips does not have The Rock. Look, if if The Rock was starring in Chips, I might be interested. Do you know the the name of the guy who's starring in it?
0: I don't know anyone who's in it. Apparently, Maya Rudolph is in it.
1: Yeah, it's Michael Pena, who is someone who I'm not really that familiar with his work. I know he was in The Martian, and that's about it.
0: I like Michael Pena. I'm actually more interested in seeing Chips. Now.
1: Am I selling you on Chips?
0: You're you're kind of selling me on Chips. I, I mean, him and Maya Rudolph, I like a lot.
1: Are are you are you ready for the return of a uh, Dak Shepard?
0: Dak Shepard is in this. I don't love Dak Shepard. He's fine, but like he does He's not itchy. But uh,
1: <laughs> there's
0: there's never been a moment where I was like, oh, thank goodness, Dak Shepard was in this.
1: i'm I'm trying to think of the one Dak shepherd movie that i liked
0: the one that bob odenkirk directed let's all go to prison
1: oh i I didn't see that i was thinking idiocracy he was frito and idiocracy
0: yeah yeah he's he's already an idiocracy
1: he's just got a thing for chips frito chips
0: who oh boy uh,
1: yeah all right still need more fml in your life check my weekly recaps and predictions each week on the war starts at midnight blog
0: and if you've got a hot take for the next perfect cineplex hit us up on facebook or twitter at wsampod
1: don't touch that dial we'll be back in a hot minute with some really rad recommendations
0: All right, Jake. It is really rad recommendation time once again. I'm really curious to see what you're recommending because if I do recall, you said that it is something more important than Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, and I assume it's also a descent into madness. So, what do you got?
1: Uh, well, initially I was gonna recommend a movie called Tomorrow, starring Robert Duvall. Uh, it's a it's a small kind of art picture. It's uh, character heavy, but like I said, I want to go with something more important. Okay, so I went with um. Nick Castle, are you familiar with his work, Nick Castles? I, I not off the top of my head, well, no. But not my name, then I don't know if you've seen this this film that he directed. Uh, it's called Major Pain. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> boy,
0: boy, boy! Have I seen Major Pain?
1: Oh, good. I I hope you had Chris because you're about my age, and I think it was mandated that we all see Major Pain.
0: Yeah, the problem is I I probably haven't seen Major Pain in close to twenty years.
1: Well you much like me uh may not have realized how much that they parody apocalypse now in major pain down oh, really? down to a scene where he's uh near the opening where he's laying in a bedroom his head shot you know like upside down uh mm-hmm. staring at the ceiling fan hearing helicopters doing karate punching well kicking a window just the straight up scene from apocalypse now
0: are there like eighteen layers dissolving over each other
1: uh i don't I don't remember. Uh, okay. I'm not saying merch edited major pain, at, at least he, if he did, it was under a pseudonym. Well, the,
0: what, what probably happened is the editor was not standing up oh. and therefore couldn't figure out how to, <laughs> how to put, put two clips over each other or eight.
1: You're right. Yeah. It, it might be it. Uh, it's, it stars what I believe is peak Damon Wayne's. I don't think Damon Wayne's mm. ever got any better than this. Also featuring yeah. Michael Ironside and, uh, Karen Parsons, who you may know from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air
0: oh yeah, Michael Ironside is in this. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I need to see this movie
1: again. Uh, I, I probably haven't watched it in a couple of years, but it's one that uh, that's, I only haven't watched because I don't have cable anymore. I would watch this yeah. movie every <laughs> time it came on on cable. I, I've seen the opening like three times and the middle part like a hundred times and the ending like twice. So it, it's one of those that, that I, I just, I can't stop once I put it on. It's hilarious, it gets, it's a, the best performance from Damon, Damon Wayans and uh he also uses some apocalypse now terminology in there when uh he he shoots a monster in the closet and uh he says that he uh terminates it with extreme prejudice okay which which when he said it in this movie in, in apocalypse now I was like I know I know that phrase where's that phrase from <laughs> it's from the many many times that I have watched major pain <laughs> wow
0: where where can one see major pain other than Hollywood Video?
1: Oh, uh, War Starts at Midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video. I, I think that's the best place you're going to find it is Hollywood Video. But if you really <laughs> want to, you could pay to rent it on YouTube, iTunes, or Amazon Video. Or, you know, probably like check your DVD cabinet. It might just be in there. I'm sure there's copies of this movie floating <laughs> around everywhere.
0: <laughs> it's, it's probably – there's probably VHS tapes still at any used uh, media store. In the world,
1: look uh, the the '90s were not necessarily the best time for cinema, so someone has to be an advocate for it. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to recommend <laughs> old '90s movies that you haven't seen in 20 years. Okay. Uh, it's not gonna be art movies. It's gonna be major pain, and you're gonna watch them, and you're gonna go, "Why? Why did you make me watch this, Jake?" And I'm gonna say, "Because it was good. It was good then, and it's good now."
0: <laughs> you know, I I will I will say you have piqued my interest. And I didn't think that was possible because I I felt that my major pain days had passed, uh, you know, once I got out of elementary school and I never needed to look back. But maybe if I if I catch this somewhere where I can watch for free, I will give it another whirl.
1: Chris, this is what you don't realize. You have a kid now. Everything. You're going to have to watch everything again. And all those movies you watched as kids, as a kid, you're going to force your kid to sit down and watch them as well.
0: Yeah, that that second part's going to happen. The the other part, I don't know. Like, I'm going to be stuck watching monster trucks.
1: Maybe, but you might be able to get away with like, uh but I got Fraggle Rock. You want to watch Fraggle Rock?
0: Yeah, E.T. E.T.'s going to be a big a big push. Big big push.
1: Yeah, I, I wish like I I saw E.T. I remember seeing E.T. And I was probably five the last time I saw it. Does that qualify as a war crime? So we can rewatch. it? Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Although yes. we already did E.T. versus Jaws, so you'll just have to watch it and then listen to that episode and then call in at four eight four four two four six three six two and tell us who was right.
1: All right. I'm. I'm. There was a difference of opinion on. Uh, I'll listen to the episode. Chris, do you have any recommendations for us?
0: I do. I, I will just say there there was a bit of a heated argument towards the end of the E.T. review. I'll just say that.
1: Did you, um, did you think the, the, the Reese's were itchy?
0: No, nothing was itchy.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> so I've got a bit of a double feature that is I tried. I really tried to avoid this, um, but ultimately I couldn't, partially because I know you haven't seen either of these films. And I think they are essential viewing. Um, so the first, the main course is Fitzgeraldo. Werner Herzog's film, Fitzgeraldo, from 1982, a few years after Apocalypse Now. Um, but not his first Madness on the River film, actually. Um, um, also he, he made earlier, um, I think like 1972, he made a Gear of the Wrath of God, um, which is, equally bizarre and crazy. And he stole that's the film that he stole the camera from like the German cinema <laughs> society for or whatever Um that I, I don't know if you ever like heard the quote where he says basically justifies it by saying like, I needed to make films and I needed the equipment. So I had to steal it. I think that's justified. It's not theft. I needed it. <laughs> um, I can't believe I didn't take the opportunity to do a Vern Herzog voice there, but Fitzgerald, it is a uh, classic Sort of this is this is my favorite Herzog film. Um, it's you know a, a amazing how much sort of parallels Apocalypse Now as far as it's uh, it's a film about um, a lot of time spent on a river. This time in the Amazon and this guy on this sort of maddening journey. Uh, Klaus Kinski, his uh, longtime collaborator, I think they they worked on five or six films together, uh, plays the titular Fitzgerald here. Actually, uh, fun fact, Mick Jagger was initially cast to play a character who I think they ended up getting rid of completely. Um, they even shot some stuff with him, but then through delays and weather and all sorts of uh, madness, he ended up having to go on tour or something and and wasn't able to be in the film. Um, but basically, he plays this this. Pretty insane guy who wants to build an opera house in the middle of the jungle uh, off the amazon, and the way the way that he decides he 's going to do this is by becoming an aristocratic rubber baron by acquiring this land uh, that that no one else has no one else wants because it 's impossible to get to. And then he figures, well, I'll just take this boat up this tributary and then hire these or have these enslaved indigenous people pull my boat over a mountain, put it down on the other side and then get to my get to my rubber tree. Just
1: to be clear, this is not a documentary, correct?
0: Well, you I'll I'll get to that. Um, Here's here's the thing. Werner Herzog, to make this film, hired and kind of poorly paid indigenous people to actually pull a boat over. It's not quite a mountain, but a a very large hill. Um, they think
1: he was his God emperor.
0: (laughs) I don't know what, like, I mean, he, it it was a, it was a wage, you know, they were, they were able to, but it was, you know, basically paying them, like a dollar a day or something, um, pennies essentially. Um, but you know, I don't think anyone got, I don't think anyone died, but there were some close calls, which brings me to your, your question about, uh, the, it's not a documentary. There is a documentary about the making of this film called burden of dreams, which is equally as bizarre. And, you know, I talked a little bit in, in our review of apocalypse now about sort of the, the life imitating the art that is being made. I think this combination of Fitzgerald and Burden of Dreams is even closer. Um, They are uh, just sort of mirror images of each other. Les Blank directed this documentary. Um, It has one of my all-time favorite uh, quotes and by far my favorite, uh, Werner Herzog quote, which I'll, it's too long to play the whole thing here, but I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, here's, here's just a little taste. I'll give you a little bit of my, my Herzog taking a closer look at what is around us. There is some sort of harmony, but it is a harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. Um, It's just like it's it's Herzog in the middle of the jungle. Like, I think he's like leaning up against a a tree or something, just talking about like how the universe is in chaos. And this is the last like the last place not touched by man because God didn't finish it. And it's this, you know, I I think I've talked on the show before about how I would love to see like a battle between like Herzog's worldview and Terrence Malick's worldview. This is like the perfect example of um, getting really into how he sees the world. Just his his talking about the Amazon and the jungle and all of this. All
1: right. Two, two things real quick. One, we need to review a Herzog movie so you can do that voice more. I, I just need more of that in my podcast.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm down. You haven't you haven't seen much Herzog, right?
1: Very little. Very little. Uh, okay. The other thing is, why do directors use the name Alan Smithy when they disown a project? Instead of Les Blank, that seems like the right disowned project (laughs) name directed by Les
0: Blank. Les Blank Blank was a real dude. He also he also made the uh, the great little short documentary. Werner Herzog eats his own shoe or eats his boot, which was made after Errol Morris finished uh, Gates of Heaven, his first documentary, which uh, Herzog encouraged him to do. Uh, Thought he needed encouragement. So he told him, I will eat my boot if you finish this project.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, for my recommendation, if if we're going to be talking about that, is going to be Dustin Hoffman uh, does not resist the temptation to eat the bathtub <laughs> by of Montreal or any song off of that early eight track recordings album. <laughs> those those songs
0: have nothing to do with Dustin Hoffman, though. Um, okay, <laughs> if if so, if you want if you want to do this uh, double feature, it's going to be a little tricky. You could you can probably actually find both of these at your local public library. I would say check there first. Uh, but Fitzcarraldo, it's available on Fandor if you're subscribed to that, or it's on Vudu and Tubi TV with ads, or you can rent it pretty much any, anywhere else. And then Burden of Dreams is currently on Filmstruck because it is a Criterion release. Um, and then it is pretty much uh, available to rent anywhere else. Uh, but like I said, check check your local library. I bet they have these. Um, and and it's it's a great double feature. It's it's like almost the ultimate special features, the the feature length special features of the making of Fitzcarraldo with with burden of dreams.
1: All right, I, 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 uh, it, it, should that come before I rewatch Apocalypse Now with Heart of Darkness, or after?
0: I think before because I think you will be amazed at just how many parallels there are hmm. between uh, between and you know, I was honestly it had been a while since I'd seen apocalypse now fitzgeraldo was more like up front in my my head and i kept thinking like oh my gosh this 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 mirrors it so much this mirrors it so much and i i tried to like come up with something more original but knowing that you haven't seen this jake if if i can just get you to watch fitzgeraldo um it'll all be worth uh worth recommending
1: all right you sold me that's the next thing i'll watch after major pain
0: and that's a wrap for another episode of war starts midnight find us online at war starts at midnight.com for show notes fantasy movie league recaps and more or say hello on twitter facebook and instagram at wsampod
1: if you enjoy the show rate and subscribe to it in itunes or wherever you get the podcast it'll help us grow the midnight warrior clan and it'll make you feel awesome
0: on the other hand if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at war at midnight.com or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362.
1: The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Strick. The spoiler alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash Machine. And shout out to Sports for the featured music on this week's show. Find out more at sportsbandok.com.
0: Martin Scorsese's latest film, Silence, is currently available on most digital platforms and will be out on Blu-ray next Tuesday, March 28th. Join us in another fortnight when Hunter Cates drops by the war bunker to discuss Silence, plus a full-blown retrospective of Martin Scorsese's long and distinguished career. Thanks for listening, folks.
1: Not with a bang, but with a whimper. And with a whimper, I'm splitting, Jack. to me this is the live album of film like you know some bands make really good albums and some bands have a really good live album and you're like yeah they missed some notes here and there and but but they jammed for a long time and it was like life-changing there in the middle it's the live album of cinema
0: the trees here are in misery the birds are in misery i don't think they sing they are screeching in pain